0: Hello, and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And today, we're going to be talking about income tax and national insurance contributions, which are our two biggest taxes. Together, they raise almost half of all tax revenues. Lots of things are happening to them. National insurance contributions were cut at the start of the year, but we're in the middle of a multi-year freeze in tax thresholds, income tax thresholds, that is, which will amount to a tax rise of over... £40 billion by the time it's finished. And these are just the latest and a string of changes in how we tax personal incomes. So today, we're going to step back from all those recent changes to ask how are these income taxes structured? How has that changed? Where are there problems with the system? And what should the government be looking to fix? And to do that, I'm joined by Dan Needle, former tax lawyer, current tax lawyer in fact, but the founder of Tax Policy Associates, and Helen Miller, Deputy Director here at the IFS and head of our tax sector. We've bitten off quite a big subject here. Income tax, national insurance contributions between them raise hundreds of billions of pounds, so quite a lot of billions of pounds to talk about. Helen, perhaps you could just start by giving us the absolute basics. How does income tax work how does national insurance work?
1: Sure. If we just start by thinking about an employee, and that's about as simple as it's going to get, then you can earn about £12,500 before you pay any income tax. After that point, you'll start paying a rate of 20% of income tax, but you'll also pay 12% of national insurance contributions. So I think many people are used to- 10% the old... now, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's 10%. You're right. Sorry. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I'm too used to the old days. So yes, it's 10% now. Since January, it has been 10%. Yes. Yeah, so people are used to thinking of the basic rate as 20%, but actually the combined rate is now 30%. And you you pay that rate up until your income reaches around 50,000 pounds then a higher rate kicks in actually the income tax rate goes up to 40% then national insurance rate goes down so you're to 2% so your combined rate becomes 42% and then if you're lucky enough to be earning over 125,000 pounds you pay the additional rate of income tax which is 45 and add that to the next and you get 47% so basically you can earn an amount before you pay any tax and then there are these three rates that you pay that increase depending how much you earn. But it's worth saying already, I think what we'll get into is that there are different rates for the self-employed. Some incomes don't accrue national insurance contributions, so you don't pay them on dividends or on pension incomes, for example. There are different rates and bans and thresholds in Scotland and a bunch of other quirks in the system that mean that actually even the top rate of 47% is much lower than some other bits of the system we have. So a simplish system to start with, albeit with this complication about having actually two taxes on income, but one that gets much more complicated when you dig into the
2: details. Can we pause directly the fact that what should be a really simple question so the rate of tax people pay on their income just took Helen three minutes to answer. I don't think I could have done it in three minutes.
0: (laughs) And she only answered about two two percent of it because there's so many differences beyond those um, relatively simple bits that Helen stated.
2: And Helen didn't mention
0: Scotland. Indeed. Well, come on to Scotland in a minute.
2: Get on to Scotland. Scotland is the (laughs) ice on the cake, the chef's kiss of UK tax complication.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's the icing on the cake of the UK altogether. Let's let's stick with this income tax national insurance thing. Dan, uh, I think one of the things that probably makes taxing income so complicated but also so unfair in some ways is the fact we've got these two different systems income tax in a sense fairly straightforward if it's income over twelve and a half thousand pounds you're going to pay income tax on it but if it's income over twelve and a half thousand pounds you might pay national insurance on it but not if it's certain kinds of income and uh, there's another bit of national insurance as well isn't there there's a bit that employers pay perhaps you could tell us a bit about that as well (laughs)
2: before we do that, why do we have these two taxes? Of course, as many people know, that's because everyone has their own personal lockbox of savings when they're a pensioner into which national (laughs) insurance goes. And that's why we have two different taxes. And that's a lie. That's that's frequently believed. And a cynic would say politicians encourage that belief. But national insurance is just tax.
0: It is. Absolutely. We can all around this table agree that national insurance is just another tax. And anyone who tells you anything else, as you say, is not telling the truth.
2: Yes, but which wasn't the question you asked me. I did a politician no, but it's a very, I'm important, point very important point to make. Um, so we see income tax and national insurance because we see it in our payslip. What we don't see is employers' national insurance, which is a marginal rate of, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, 30.8%. And when an employer has a pay packet a, a total bucket of money they're going to give to their employees whether it's salaries uh, bonuses or anything else the first thing that comes out of that is the 13.8 percent plus an apprenticeship levy and then it's the remaining which is paid to employees and then they pay income tax and employee national insurance exactly
0: but important only if you're an employee does all of that apply
2: now yes. if you are and there's a very good rational reason for that of tell course. me what it is Dan. I was hoping you
1: could come in. Well, I'll tell you both. There is no good rational reason for it, really, (laughs) other than that it's obviously that people think of it as an employer tax. And therefore, if you haven't got an employer, people think you shouldn't have the tax. But of course, if you're self-employed, it's almost like you are your own employer. And it puts a big wedge between uh, how much people are paid, whether they're employees, and they have to also basically have their income subject to employer national insurance contributions. And if you're self-employed, then that tax is not attached to the income you're creating. So a big tax break, basically, to people who are working for their own Businesses.
0: so i should fire you helen and pay you as a self-employed person because between yeah, us, we'd even better i should set, up, well, better, I tax,
1: should set up helen incorporated i should send my services back to you and i should take dividends basically which would be taxed yeah. at lower rates of income tax and not get national and not get right. employer that next. would
2: be that would be an outrageous piece of tax avoidance and mountains of ink have been spent in creating legislation that would undo that and tax helen as an employee product. oh that
0: means i've got to keep you oh yeah. well <laughs> But but hopefully you're 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 beginning to see the problem here. That in principle, if if I was contracting with someone as a self-employed person or as their, their their own company, between us we'd be paying less tax in total than if I simply employed someone. And and Dan, you used to be in the happy position, didn't you, of being a partner in a law firm, and being a partner yes. meant you weren't actually an employee should we
2: put some numbers on this? Yes, uh, go on. So let's hypothetically imagine you have 100 overpaid partners in a law firm, city law firm. Let's say it has 100 million of profit between the 100 partners. So even my lawyer math tells me the partners get gross income of a million pounds each. They'll pay about 435,000 pounds income tax on that, 35,000 national insurance. So they will take home, out of their 1 million profit, they will take home 530,000. Lucky and HMRC them. Lucky them. 47 million of that 100 million profit pool. Okay, so that's really the important figure that out of the 100 million of profits paid to partners in a law firm, HMRC gets 47 million. Now, let's imagine we're not talking about a law firm at all. Let's imagine we're talking about a bank. The bank also has 100 million of profit to divvy up to its traders, executives, whoever, but they have employees. So there's employers' national insurance on that, meaning 13.8% of that 100 million vanishes in tax before it gets to the bankers. So in this scenario, instead of HMRC getting 47 million, it gets 52.3 million. So bankers end up paying significantly more tax than lawyers. And of course, there's a perfectly rational reason. Which for
0: that. you're going to sell me. No, no, no that's <laughs> my question for you. I think we've been here before.
2: <laughs> you have this disparity between employment income and self-employment income. And people come up with rationalization. They say, of course, if you're self-employed, you're not getting holidays, you don't get sick pay. and um, So it's only fair you pay less tax. But as a partner law firm, none of that was true. I-, I got holidays, I was paid when I was sick. Why on earth? Did I pay less tax
0: than a banker? Well, uh, you, you you heard it here first. It's time to feel sorry for those overpaid bankers because they are more hard done by than the um, the overpaid
2: lawyers. They're, they're probably the most hard done by high earners in the country because they're employees. They can't stop being employees. The banks these days are terrified of doing it in naughty, and so they are paying a large amount of their income in tax, far more than lawyers, far more than their private equity brethren across the road. So yes, let's feel sorry for the bankers, or rather, let's ask why we have a system which treats different people doing jobs differently
0: let's thank the bankers for the big amount of tax that they pay that uh, that that helps us all helen Dan said he got holiday pay and so on when he was a partner in a law firm but even if you're self-employed and don't get all of that that's still not a good reason to be paying less national insurance is it
1: it's not no and there are lots of different ways to think about this but One is to think about, if you think of holiday pay, it's not something that the government is giving employees. It's not the government that gives me holiday pay, it's IFS. It's not that the case that the government is skewing the labour market towards employees in any way, it's not. The the labour market is deciding, basically when I contribute to IFS, I get a combination of salary and holiday pay and uh, we don't have health insurance. If we did, we'd have those kinds of things. It's not the government skewing the labour market. When you add a tax, the tax isn't offsetting the lack of holiday pay for the self-employed people. It is actually just adding a bias towards self-employment in the market. Another way to think of that is to say that the self-employed could pay themselves holiday pay if they wanted to. It's like they're contracting, they're the boss and the worker for their own company. And they could decide to take all of their money in salary or they could decide to notionally give themselves holiday pay. Whatever they choose there is nothing to do with the government or how much tax they pay. The government shouldn't be intervening in that decision. So the punchline is that when we give tax breaks to self-employed people, the government is favouring self-employment, over-employment.
0: Yeah. And to put it another way, if I, as an employer, was thinking about, shall I hire an employee or shall I use a self-employed person, not only... Do I get the self-employed person with less tax? I don't have to pay them holiday pay or anything like that as well. So you're actually increasing the differential between the way that we treat employees and self-employed like that. And we haven't even got on to, and perhaps we shouldn't yet, the differences between, obviously, if the income is employment income, as we said, you pay national insurance. If it comes from anything other than employment, you don't pay national insurance. So um, clearly, if you are a pensioner or you're getting your income from, if you happen to own a few properties and you're getting rent, that's not Earned income, so you don't pay national insurance on it. If you actually go out and work 40 hours a week, you do pay national insurance on it.
1: And perhaps one of the things we'll come back to about potentially fixing the system, I think one of the problems with having two taxes on income is just the sheer lack of transparency here. So we could have one single tax, basically merge the two of them. And if you wanted, if the government wanted to have a lower rate on some kinds of income, it could set a lower rate if it wanted to. But at the moment, we're not even really setting consciously the different rates on different things. So if it turns out that we cut NICs like we did recently, then we'll reduce the gap between earned and unearned income. If we increase income tax, we'll increase that gap. But it's not the gap per se that that politicians are thinking about when they're making those decisions. It's the what's the politics of cutting NICS or income tax. We have these big gaps and these big variations, and we're not even designing carefully what those variations are. They're sort of accident that ends up getting baked into the system and, and just left there to to float around.
0: Indeed. And just to go back to, to, to Dan's point about national insurance in the first place, it did have a rationale back in the 1940s when the beverage welfare system was put in place. National insurance was actually a flat rate tax. you paid, Everyone paid the same amount to pay for a flat rate benefit. But that link has been completely broken. It is very difficult to avoid getting full entitlement to state pension in the UK at the moment. And your entitlement is much more associated whether you've lived in the country than it is with the amount of national insurance you have paid. So it really is just another tax on earnings.
2: I guess the legacy of that is that you have the funniness that the main most popularly paid rate of employee national insurance, 10%, stops once you're earning a bit over £4,000 a month. And then it drops to. Two percent, reflecting the fact that National Insurance was "quote unquote" paying for a particular pension benefit would only, which only reach a certain point. Therefore, it was only fair you didn't pay more National Insurance if your salary got above that
0: point. Absolutely, and we often think of income tax going from twenty percent to forty percent, but actually the tax on your earnings when you hit that higher rate threshold goes from. to 42%. It still goes up overall, but it doesn't go up by the full 20%. It sounds like it goes up if you're just thinking about income tax. Another illustration of what Helen was saying about how this creates a lack of transparency Hmm. in the system. But talking about lack of transparency in the system, Dan, we've done the super simple bit uh, in terms (laughs) of describing the way tax and national insurance work. Just give us some examples of how it isn't quite that simple.
2: It would be, except for the fact that politicians haven't been able to resist tinkering. There's a belief in certain policy circles that the great British public cares a lot about the rates of tax and either doesn't notice or doesn't care about other tax changes. So over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen tax increases that didn't change the rate, but fiddled with things. You end up with high marginal rates in particular places. Stepping back for a second, what do I mean by marginal rate? A marginal rate is how much tax you pay on the next pound you earn. And that's important because my desire to earn another pound, uh, my desire to take on more hours, take a promotion and so forth, is going to be affected by how much of that one pound of my next earnings I retain. So the marginal rate is very important. A couple of changes in particular. The first is child benefit. So child benefit used to be a universal benefit. Everybody got it. George Osborne made a change so that once you start earning £50,000, child benefit starts to disappear. And that continues between £50,000 salary and £60,000 salary until eventually you have no child benefit paid to you at all. And there's a special tax which does that called the High Income Child Benefit Charge, given the lovely pronunciation of <laughs> But once you take that into account... The marginal rate of tax someone pays when they earn £50,000 is not 30% or 40%. It is, if you take the case of someone with three children, it's 71%. Of every pound they earn, between 50000 and 60000 they lose 71 pence to tax and they retain only 29%.
1: And just to add to that, it's the marginal rate, I think it's a down to, varies with the number of children you have. So because of the way they've designed the HICBIC to, to taper it away, Basically, the more children you have, the higher your marginal rate is in that band. So it starts at more around 55 if you've got one child and goes up to above 80 if you've got four children. So not only do we have this funny hump in the schedule, we have a hump that varies depending on how many children uh, you've got. Which makes some great charts.
2: Yeah, I've got a friend. I've got a friend who we'll call Steve because that's his name. And Steve had six children under eighteen at one point, creating a marginal tax rate of ninety-six percent.
0: Was he actually earning between fifty and sixty thousand?
2: I'm not going to ask him that. i mean
0: <laughs> I've not heard it called the hickbick before. I have to say that's that's very exciting. All the
2: people in the know All the people in the know. No, all all cool the in the
0: know well, I've realised <laughs> that I'm not actually in the know when it comes to anything very much at all rather than having the allowance 20% 40% 45% we've got an allowance 20% rate a rate which varies between 40% and 90% over that 10,000 pound rate then back to 40% up to 100,000 pounds then a 60% rate between 100,000
2: and 125,000
0: why is that ah you tell me why have we got a 60% rate between 100 and 125,000
2: because another tweak that was made was to claw back the personal allowance, the tax-free bit that we all get before we start paying tax. Once you start earning £100,000, the personal allowance starts getting clawed back. That creates a marginal rate of something like 62% until the personal allowance is all gone at about £124,000 of salary.
0: Yeah. So it's described as a clawing back of a personal allowance. It is it is an income tax rate of 60%, but it's it's never described of that. So instead of a very nice and simple 0, 020 40, 45% system, we've got 0, 20, somewhere between 40 and 90, back down to 40, up to 60, and then down to 45. That That's broadly... And the- of course,
1: the rates would vary even more if we added national insurance contributions into Indeed. that. And, if you look, and actually, to add one more fun thing, for the people who have children out there, there's something else that happens at 100k, which is... But even more yes. stupid, which is that very broadly, working families can get access to help with their childcare. There are a couple of policies. One basically gives you up to £2,000 a year towards your childcare costs. The other one gives you access to free hours of childcare, but you lose them once one person in a couple starts earning above £100,000, which can put you in the bizarre situation where if you're somebody with a couple of kids earning, say, £99,000 and you want to take, you're thinking of taking a new job, getting a promotion, you'll actually be made worse off unless you basically earn more... More than one hundred thirty thousand pounds. So you could you could basically get a thirty thousand pounds increase in your pay somehow, but still be made worse off by the fact that you've now lost access to the childcare. So that's basically a. A tax rate of above one hundred percent, you are being made worse off when you take that pay increase, unless you can put it into your pension or do somehow basically not take the pay as pay. You are you're made worse off, which is a bizarre situation. We're actually that's not just a slight incentive to work; that's a, just a real. You shouldn't do that. You should not if you have if you're taking childcare, you just should, should not have an income between that amount.
2: Which is crazy because we've heard from people who turn away work because they've got to say February and they don't want to break the hundred thousand pound point because it will cost them money. We've heard of people in the NHS who've acted able to reduce their hours. Consultants have reduced their hours to avoid getting that figure. We've heard of people who have declined promotions to avoid getting in that danger zone because it would cost them money. And yeah, you could make additional pension contributions, but for, for many people, working more hours for more money in 30 years' time is not a great deal.
0: It's bonkers. I think it's fair to say. And it's worth saying to people who rightly will be thinking, well, I don't care that much about people earning around a £100,000 mark. That £100,000 mark has been stuck at a £100,000 in cash terms when we're looking at the 60% rate. But for pretty much everything, it's just stuck in cash terms. So it's coming down and down and down in terms of the number of people it's affecting. And in terms of the number of people it's affecting, it's a pretty much the same number of people who were paying the higher rate of tax 30 years ago. So if you look at the number of 40% taxpayers 30 years ago, it's very similar to the number of people now earning over £100,000. So it's high earning, but it's not ludicrously High earning, and we're certainly not in that same place as the bankers and lawyers that Dan was just uh, talking about on a million pounds uh, each. Now, there, that, that that is an entirely different part of the stratosphere. But
1: of course, it's also worth saying that you know, even if you are somebody who wants to have higher tax rates at the top, whatever you define as the top, then there are just better ways of doing it. Absolutely, right? so it's not good for society if you have a whole bunch of people who are declining work or declining promotions or delaying those decisions because they're being made worse off by a tax. We could. There are lots of other ways we could raise money from people on above hundred thousand. Even if you want to target people on above hundred thousand with children, you could target that group in a way that, that that didn't have this horrid cliff edge.
2: Yeah, even if you were a frothing at the mouth Trotskyist, I don't think you could justify. <laughs> I'm sure
0: there are many frothing at the mouth Trotskyists who are listening to this podcast. you can listen
2: to this podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> Hi, man. Uh, I, I don't think. I don't think even then you could justify a marginal tax rate of twenty thousand percent, but only on people earning a hundred thousand to hundred thirty thousand pounds people earning more than hundred thirty thousand pounds. That's fine. We don't care so much about taxing those guys. You pay 42%. But if you dare them between a hundred and hundred and thirty, then, then we get you. Then, then the revolution will, will have. Absolutely no sympathy for the amount of tax you're paying. That is not a consistent position for a Trotskyist. (laughs) Surely it's not a consistent position for a Conservative, is it?
0: Well, it it would appear to be because they uh, clearly introduced this this rule.
2: But no one talks about it. It drives me crazy. uh, I think there is a hidden conspiracy among politicians. The Conservatives don't want to talk about it because this happened on their watch. They have presided over marginal rates of 60, 70, 80, 20,000%. Labour doesn't want to talk about it because they're not sure they want to commit to fix it, and they think people will be sad if they talk about anyone earning 50000 or heaven help us uh, £100,000. All the politicians are delighted not to talk about it, even the people who suffer from these rates and whose life choices are being bent by these rates, are embarrassed to talk about it because in a very English way, they think, I can't complain, I'm doing fine. So no one talks about yeah.
0: it. Actually, the, the only people I've had in to talk to me and complain about what happens over £100,000 actually the airline pilots union, which... Might tell you something about how much airline pilots. Oh, um, good for them. Uh, <laughs> good for them. It, it's, it's striking, isn't it? We, we sometimes, those of us of a certain age, remember back to the eighty three percent rates uh, that we had on uh, earned income in the nineteen seventies. Speak
2: for yourself. I have <laughs> got no recollection.
0: <laughs> but actually, you can you can find rates similar to that now, uh, and yeah. that is not something. Is you, actually, you will find politicians talking a lot more about the very high rates in the 1970s than you will talking about. Which
2: people didn't pay. They, we, we had rates of unearned income going up to 98%. Yep. Thought you couldn't
0: remember that. and what <laughs> the Beatles helped us, right? <laughs>
2: I'm older than I look. And... People didn't pay them because there were so many ways to avoid them. It was the heyday of avoidance schemes. The rate of capital gains tax. Capital gains tax didn't exist until 1968. And between then and Nigel Lawson, the rate was only 30%. The Beatles song, Mr. Taxman, it's not a coincidence that three months after that song was released, Apple Records was founded because the Beatles realized the way to get rid of Mr. Taxman was to get your income. capital gains.
1: So for all the pop stars listening to our podcast, which I'm sure there are many, we need a pop song about the hippic or about (laughs) the 100k cliff edge. We need someone to sing about that and get those into the mainstream.
2: I think people should start talking about it. They should stop being embarrassed about how well they're doing and focus on the fact that it is bad for the country if high earning professionals doing important jobs have an incentive not to work.
0: Yeah, the problem is the most popular, the most successful pop stars will be earning well above the the hickbick or even the uh, the hundred thousand pound level. Um, to
1: help the people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely. Well, again, uh, lots of advice here on the ifs zooms in, and certainly advice to our uh, any writers of popular music out there can uh, can follow us and uh, and start writing about tax.
2: But write to your MP. And anyone listening who's in, who's in that zone, write to your MP. Ask how they justify marginal rates at this level, and ask what they're going to do about it.
0: Excellent. That, that is a very British piece of advice. Write to your MP if you're really, really, really angry. I'll come back in a in a moment to some of um, what's been happening to the income tax system in England, but I just want to do a little segue into what's happening in Scotland to income tax. Income tax or at least substantial chunks of income tax policy is devolved to the Scottish government, not all of it, but a significant chunk of it. And subject to all the complexities we've just spent too long talking about in England, you've got your, you've got your basic rate, you've got your higher rate and you've got your additional rate. 40, in Scotland, they now have a starter rate, a basic rate, an intermediate rate, a higher rate, an advanced rate, and an additional rate of income tax. So, not the three that we have here in England. Very productive in Scotland. They've doubled the number of rates to six. Helen, what does that what, – why? What has that achieved?
1: Scotland basically has the power to change the rates and to change the thresholds at which those rates kick in. And I guess they're using that power to alter – at the margins at least, who is paying tax and by how much. To give you a sense of scale, just one number I happen to have with me, is that a Scottish taxpayer with an income of £125,000 will pay just over £5,000 more in income tax than if they were based in the rest of the UK. That's a substantial sum. Scotland has used its power to to change exactly who is paying and how much they're paying. In some ways, the six rates add some complexity. And of course, it's, there's more to keep track of. It's maybe a bit less trans- transparent. There's also a lot of complexity just about the fact that national insurance contributions are not devolved. Ah, Again, if we want to keep people thinking about your combined rate, you need to go through and work out at which point national insurance kicks in. And if the thresholds of income tax change in Scotland, but you still have English national insurance threshold points, then actually keeping track of your marginal rate, obviously you can go on an online calculator, but it's not obvious that you don't just add them up quickly. You've got to know where the thresholds are. And one of the problems I guess it causes for Scotland is we talked earlier about certain kinds of income not being charged NICs or not having lower rates. When Scotland recently introduced their advanced rate, they actually thought they'd lose a lot of the potential revenue through behavioural responses, one of which is that people can switch away from income into, into other forms or they can move or they can put more income to a pension. And actually that benefits fits the rest of the UK because they haven't got control over those things. So actually, there's a whole bunch of complexity around Scotland that's not just about the individual choices Scotland have made, but about the interaction between a bit of a system that's devolved and the rest of the system that's
2: not devolved. But the Scottish experiment is interesting. Have, have, have you talked about the Laffer Curve on these podcasts before? Probably not. The idea of the Laffer Curve is that if tax was 0%, you would raise nothing. And if tax was 100%, no one would do anything, so you'd raise nothing you might disagree with either statement, but let's go with it for now. In between those two points, and I apologise for anyone not watching this on video, there must logically be a curve where the amount of tax you collect goes up as the rate goes higher than 0%, but then at some point starts going down as you approach 100%. And therefore, if you are at the top of that curve, its highest point, if you raise tax, then your revenues will actually fall. And the people who talk about the curve seem to think we're always at the top of the Laffer curve. We just never raise taxes, we always count less, despite a remarkable lack of evidence for us being at that point. However, Scotland has, with immense generosity for economists across the world, been conducting a natural experiment into where the Laffer curve sits. I think Helen said a minute ago that a good bit of what they're collecting from their recent 1p increase is in fact not appearing in tax because of people's behavioral responses. It's a huge amount of it. Out of the 53 million that in principle, that 1p increase should raise, they actually only get 8 million. They lose 45 million out of the 53. So they are very near the point where raising that tax rate further will actually reduce their income. So that's a fantastic discovery by the Scottish (laughs) government. And that's the only rational reason I can think of for increasing the rate in that way, that it's an (laughs) economic experiment.
0: So so I think that's the estimate of the Scottish Fiscal Commission you were describing there, is that right? They
2: have been right before. They've had scary numbers before, which proved out to be correct.
1: But it's also worth saying, again, but more broadly there's lots of actually economic evidence. Other countries have done us a favour as well and let us estimate these kinds of things. And we've had other ones in the UK. So there's lots of evidence that high earning people actually respond quite a lot to taxes. So we have a lot of these behavioural responses. But interestingly, it's not just that they work less, some, of that, some amount of that goes on, but it's that they have other options for what to do with themselves, like they can put their money into pensions, or they can decide to take more money in the form of capital rather than labour. Or in Scotland. the Scottish case, you could decide to move to England rather than be in Scotland. And it's worth saying that we don't actually, it's not like we think everybody is like flooding over the border, right? So you have some high income people, and you lose their tax income, you don't just lose the marginal pound you were trying to get, you lose the tax you're trying to get on all of their income. And that's why you can get some of these quite big effects, even if most people aren't moving. It's not just the UK government uses higher estimates for high income people too. I think they're just higher in Scotland because it's extra boundary basically between the countries yeah.
2: and it happens at the margin so it's not necessarily someone moving from scotland to england it's someone who might spend around half their time in one country and around half in the other and now it makes sense them to look at that more closely and say well actually i'm resident in england n- not scotland it's a lesson to
0: the rest of us that these things really can matter and indeed the office of budget responsibilities estimates in england suggest that whilst increasing the top rate of income tax here would raise some money it would only raise a fraction of the amount that it would raise if there was no behavioural response to that increase in tax. So this is something that matters. And I think some of the work that that Helen and others and other colleagues of ours have done here also illustrates just how at least open we are to people moving. It's something I'd never thought about so hard in the past, but a very large fraction, Helen, of the very top earners and therefore the very top income taxpayers in the UK were actually born abroad. And therefore, you might think of the sort of people who could at some point uh, be pushed away.
1: Yeah, I think it's something, I'll have to check my numbers, but I think it's something like a fifth of people who are in the top 1% were born outside and of I the UK. I think U- there's a third
0: of those in the top 0.1%.
1: Very high number. Of course, they're actually quite an interesting group because on the one hand, the fact that they were born somewhere else means they must be more mobile. They've got an option to go to live in another country. A lot of them are actually based in finance, though. And actually, if you think that sort of London agglomeration effect means they're more tied to the UK because it's, there's a reason to want to be here. Maybe they're a bit less mobile than you'd otherwise think. So it's a bit of an open question that's happening in academia right now. Of, uh, about these high income individuals who are tied to some kind of financial centre, but are foreign born, how mobile actually are they? But they're certainly, yeah, they're, they're, they're a big part of the top.
2: And the rates of income tax on all earners, not just high earners, are not high in the UK compared to other countries. Mm-hmm. They're stupider in many ways with the ridiculous marginal <laughs> rates, but in absolute terms, they ain't that high.
0: Yeah, that is, that, that is absolutely true. And it's worth saying in all of the context of what we say about tax is that whilst taxes in the UK are very high by historic UK standards and not high by certainly Western European standards. And actually, particularly because social insurance contributions in many Western European countries are much higher than the social insurance contributions here. Before we, we stop, we should probably talk about some of the policy options. We've talked about some of the things that are wrong with our tax and national insurance system. What could we do to make it better, I mean, yeah. hell, an obvious thing seems to be. Why don't we just integrate income tax slash insurance and have a single tax? Which is, wouldn't that make everything much better?
1: Uh, so I would say yes. I think that would be a good idea because I think if, if, nothing, if for no other reason than the transparency, I think having two taxes that people that struggle to understand, I think is just actually really uh, a bad piece of policymaking. And it's worth saying that doesn't mean that I think we necessarily have to have a system that has exactly the same rate everywhere or that couldn't be more contribution-based. We could decide to have a, a system that had a greater link between how much tax you pay and what you get in state benefits. We don't have that, but we could. But you could do that under a combined tax too. So you could combine national insurance and income and still decide that at this kind at this point in income or this for this type of income you get different levels of contributions i don't think a, a combined tax stop you do any of those complicated things what it would do is show you all the complicated things we've done and make it clear that we've made these crazy decisions about thresholds in different points and tax rates that go up and down and it varies across different incomes. If we had one schedule and wrote down the the different rates for the different incomes, it'd be much more obvious what those choices were and we'd have to justify them. And and I think I find it quite hard to justify. So yeah, personally, if I were in charge, I'd just move towards a single income tax.
0: Would you, Dan? Is that just a naive economist? If you're sitting there as a tax lawyer thinking, for goodness sake, there are 157 reasons why you couldn't possibly do that.
2: In principle, it's absolutely the sensible thing to do. The problem is that would involve government admitting that, in fact, people are not paying tax at 20%, that employees are paying tax at 32%, which I think is politically challenging. The answer may be to do more of what we just had and, over time, look to cut national insurance and, dare I say it, increase income tax commensurately. You could do it in such a way, in pound for pound for every penny that you cut national insurance, you'd be raising income tax by a bit less than a penny because everyone pays it. So you could, bit by bit, cowardly step by cowardly step, phase out national insurance. And that would be a very rational thing to do.
1: I think it's worth saying, even from this naive economist, would say that employer nix, I think, would be the genuinely more difficult one because it's just big. And whereas I think people might not like hearing that their marginal rate's actually 30% but it is in fact they can go check their paycheck and it's just about sh- showing them something I think employer nix is harder and there'd be a bigger transition right because even though in the long run we think employer nix is born on workers you get lower wages that wouldn't be true on day one if you just if you switched employer nix from IFS to me I would I would feel that in the short run so I think employer and national insurance contribution would be a harder one to deal with and there are different
2: options there but that's a problem because employer nix is, is so big and so distorted at the moment and
0: then- but of course, Dan, you're not at all cowardly step by cowardly step uh, proposition. I think it's extremely courageous minister step by extremely oh, courageous Jesus. minister step. Oh,
2: uh, in, I don't think that kind of language <laughs> is called football,
0: in which you would um, move the income tax rate up. I think you were, God forbid, I think you were suggesting that might affect all income and therefore actually result in pensioners paying the same uh, rate of tax as people of working age.
2: But we know politicians are really happy to tell pensioners that they've done very well in the last few years and take a bit more taxes, only fair.
0: Absolutely. I'm glad we're agreed. that. Uh, what world do we live in here? I'm glad we're agreed that that's, um, uh, that is the world we live in. What, what about some of the silly bits that we've talk, talked about? Hell, of the 60% rate between £100,000 and £125,000, we may want to, as we've described, we may want to tax these higher income people. Is there a more sensible way of doing it?
1: Yeah, I think you just changed the rate. I mean, I, I, <laughs> we have a system. It's, it's, it, it, it is easy. Yeah, we have a system. We have bands and you put a high rate on a high band if you want like that. So in that sense, it's not difficult. It's purely politics, right? So we could take the
0: 45p rate, start it a bit earlier. and um... yeah.
1: The problem with that is it wouldn't be a bit earlier. So I haven't crunched the numbers. But basically, what they it, it was put in place as a way to be a tax rise on higher earners, to make a nice distributional chart that, at some point in past, in some budget, meant that they could say we raised more from the top. It's actually quite expensive because all these people who are earning above £100,000 are no longer getting their personal allowance. You're raising quite a lot of money through it, and they've already brought the additional rate down from around £150 to now £125. So you've already done that. That, that was you could have done that while getting rid of some of this tapering. You didn't do that, so now I think you'd need to be bringing that 45% rate down below £100,000 to make up the revenue. So of course the government could just remove it and say this is a bad policy. We'll get rid of it. But if you want to do something else, raise more money from the top, you've either got to have a higher rate, an additional rate that's much higher than it currently is, or start it much lower, unless you want a distributional chart that's a giveaway for the rich.
2: If you argue about it, it costs, I believe, about £7 billion, which pleasingly is the same as a inheritance tax. It's just this benefits a lot more people at a lot lower levels of wealth and has a benefit for the economy and not disincentivizing work.
0: Yeah. I think the chances that any Chancellor is going to have a seven billion pound tax cut on people earning over a hundred thousand pounds without offsetting it somehow, I think are probably for good reasons or bad minimal to say the least the Defeatist, and, talk, the uh, defeatist so maybe, talk I think given the politics I
1: mean, one thing I might try to do if I were I'd be lynched I'm sure on day one but if I ever come into power doing anything, you could just explicitly call it a marginal you could make it a marginal rate ban so stop calling it withdrawal of the personal allowance because giving it back to rich people is always going to be difficult to do politically just call it a 60% rate then that's a a parameter you could adjust and you could make it 59 or 58 or 57. You could start eroding it. Or maybe you could change the point at which it kicks in from 100 to a higher number and slowly try to erode it back to a flatter structure, which is obviously horrible and unsatisfying from a tax design point of view. But you could do things that might make it easier to row back on that policy, I think.
2: It's a shame. There are tax policies like this which are objectively bad. And the IFS warned about them at the time. It's not like this was a surprise. But once they become embedded in the system, become very hard to remove. SDLT
0: is another one. Uh, stamp duty land tax. Uh, people don't know what SDLT is for some uh, unaccountable reason. Don't get me going on stamp duty land tax. I could spend uh, a whole day telling okay. you how that is the worst oh, tax in the Let, entire let's world.
2: Let's do one of these on stamp duty land tax. Absolutely,
0: and the conclusion is it's a really bad tax, and in my view, it's the worst tax. Though it's my
2: favourite one, actually.
0: Lots of exciting stuff for lawyers in there. Clearly, let, let, let's end on something that's perhaps a bigger issue for for most people. Come back to where we started. We are in the middle of a historically big tax rise. The the personal allowance has been frozen at twelve and a half thousand pounds for three years. It's got another three years of freezing to go. Higher rate threshold is being frozen. All of the thresholds are being frozen. It's a forty billion pound tax rise. If you were looking for £40 billion, Helen, you can see why politicians are going there. Is this a way you would go to raise £40 billion?
1: We can absolutely see politically why it's attractive because at no point did the Chancellor stand up and say I'm raising 40 billion. He stood up and said I'm raising 8 billion or, or around about then and he just got more because of inflation. Um,
0: and extending the uh, freeze for more years for as more well. For more
1: years. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to, to, to change the level of the personal allowance. You actually had big changes in the personal allowance across the 2010s that were taking people out of tax. So I think it's completely right that the government can choose at what point do you want to start paying tax and they could choose to start it at a higher or lower rate. I don't think there's anything objectively right or wrong about exactly where it starts. I think the thing I don't like is it's being driven by inflation, not by choices. I think if they'd stood up and said, we want to, currently it's about two thirds of people pay income tax, the other third don't for various reasons. If they said, we want to change how many people are paying income tax, increase that number and increase when the different thresholds kick in and here's what we're going to set it at, I'd have had a lot more sympathy for it. So
0: again, you're you're after transparency, clarity, A clear Honesty. view of what we want. Oh, good God. Honesty is what we're after. Uh, of course, the other effect of um, freezing these allowance and thresholds, Dan, has been a huge increase in the number of people who are paying higher rate tax. When I started work back in the Middle Ages, to be a higher rate taxpayer was a you know, you had to be a proper high earner to be a higher rate taxpayer. You've now got, I can't remember, is it a fifth of earners or something? A fifth
2: of tax. I think about
1: yeah. 12% of people currently pay a higher rate, and it's going up to something more like 16% at the That's end of the year. 16% of
2: people. Yeah, but if you then inflation adjust that to take us to where we are now, it's a bit over 20% yeah. of taxpayers. it yeah. seems likely that it won't be that long before half full households in the UK have someone paying the higher rate. Yeah,
0: so that is is just a change in the structure of the tax system. We used to have a sort of essentially a basic rate paid by most people and a higher rate for higher earners. And we've now got two basic rates and then a higher rate on top maybe that's the best way of raising all of the money that we need to raise but whether that's the best way of raising it or not we have run out of time because because dan has to go and look after his children and and we have to go and do some work because uh, some of us are full-time workers still thank you dan um thank you helen Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The IFS Zooms In. And I hope you enjoyed finding out more about how income tax and national insurance work. If you want to find out even more, there's loads and loads of stuff about tax on our website, www.ifs.org.uk. And if you also want to support us, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. See you next time.